0: Welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature, does not take into consideration your personal situation, circumstances, or needs.
1: And today, we're going to talk about one of the most popular topics on Investing Compass, and that is superannuation.
0: And we have our second, and we'll introduce this in a couple minutes. But we have our second interview that we've started this year doing interviews. So so this is this is exciting. The other thing that's exciting. So I was walking around the office. Shawnee was on leave, and a colleague of our of ours, George, came up to me and asked me about my Christmas present to you and how it was doing. Yes. So people remember. Shani set a $15 limit on Christmas gifts. Because you can't be trusted. Because apparently I can't be trusted for trying to get you a nice gift. <laughs> but she set this limit, and I purchased shares for her with the ticker symbol SJ. So it's like some sketchy Chinese- Sci
1: and Joy Holdings.
0: Sci and Joy Holdings. Yeah, some sort of like, I don't even remember what they do. I don't do. know what they do. And this, by the way, is not the way you're <laughs> supposed to invest. Invest. But I checked SJ Holdings today, and since I purchased it, and I purchased it in the beginning of November, it is up over 60%. (laughs) So I bought it for $1.81 US, Mm -hmm. and it is now worth $2.91.
1: That's a good return.
0: Yes, it's a very good return. And the issue here is if you would have set, let's say, a $10,000 limit... Then, would you
1: have put $10,000 into a company you had no idea what they actually did?
0: Well, no, but <laughs> okay. if you would have done that, I would have 60% more.
1: Mm. Well, we all have investments like that, that we wish we just put a little bit more in, you know?
0: Well, I wanted or a little bit less than. Yeah. Well, in this case, the difference between fifteen dollars and ten thousand dollars is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, I overspent and I spent eighteen dollars on it. So there you go. The position is now worth twenty nine dollars and ten cents.
1: And how is the U.S. dollar
0: done? Uh, well, the U.S. dollar. So this was purchased in the U.S. The U.S. dollar has come down, um, a little bit since then. So that does detract from our returns. But anyway, we'll keep track of SJ.
1: Okay. Sounds good.
0: All right. So as Shani said, we're doing superannuation, and we all understand, of course, why superannuation is a popular topic. Everyone has super, and it's the main vehicle that people use to invest for their retirement. And in most cases, it's the second largest asset that most people own after property, of course.
1: And for many young investors, it is their first And so it's important to get your head around how you can maximize your outcomes for the goals that you want to achieve. And one of the most common questions we get about superannuation is, how do I choose my super fund? Or how do I know if I'm in a good fund? Or what factors should I consider when choosing?
0: And these are all really good questions. And we've done a few episodes now on super. Our first dive into super was a two-parter, and it focused on understanding how much you should have in super and the risk to look out for during your super journey as well as how to maximize your outcomes. And then our second episode, or I guess third episode in total, which was our 99th episode, we looked at super and fees. And we looked at you, Shani, and why you switch super funds and how much is too much to pay in your super. And then our last look at super, we released just in January. And it was a listener-requested episode on how investors look at asset allocation in super. And we've dropped the links for each of these episodes on our resources page, and you can access this through our episode notes.
1: So today, we're taking a little bit of a different approach, and we're doing it with our second guest on Investing Compass, and a really great guest at that. We have Anika Bradley, who is the Director of Manager Research for Morningstar in Australia, who's going to help us understand a new entrant into the super space today by discussing Vanguard's new super offering.
0: And as always, we'll set the scene a bit before jumping into the interview. So super has developed into a huge industry. So there's $3.3 trillion in assets currently in superannuation, and there are just over 500 super funds.
1: And broadly, you have three choices as an investor. There are industry funds, retail funds, and self-managed super funds. And as I mentioned in previous episodes, we've talked about the considerations for choosing a super fund. Like everything else in investing, it's really about you what is your level of knowledge, what you're trying to accomplish, and how much time you have to dedicate to actively managing your super.
0: And no matter what, super is likely going to be a critical part of your retirement plan. So it's a topic that everyone should be interested in.
1: Okay. So today, we're lucky enough to hear from somebody who evaluates different investment options for a living. And Anika is going to talk a little bit about Vanguard's new offering and compare it to one of the largest industry super funds, Australian Super. So we hope you enjoy the interview.
0: So today we have our second guest on the podcast, and once again, a great one. So I'm joined by Anika Bradley, who is the director of our manager research team in Australia. And before we get into the topic, a lot of people that don't work in the industry don't really understand titles and what people do. So maybe if you could expand a little bit on what you do and your team does, that would be helpful.
2: Thank you, Mark. So basically what we do is we meet with managers and we meet with investment managers who manage different types of funds. So from Australian Supers balanced option right through to Vanguard's index funds. And we try to help investors understand whether the investments that those particular fund managers who we meet with, uh, whether those investments are worthy of investor consideration. So we've got over 450 investment strategies that we assess in any single year so not not a stock so a fund or an exchange traded fund an ETF and we publish reports with with medals that say gold, silver, bronze and those um, medals are help are to help investors really navigate what's a good investment what's not a good investment.
0: Okay, and that's great. And we talk about funds and ETFs a lot on this show, and we talk about the medalist ratings. So now you know who leads the team that comes up with those ratings. So that's uh, it's really helpful. And you mentioned Vanguard, and that's mm-hmm. obviously a little bit of a good segue. We're going to talk a little bit about Vanguard's new offering, and we're going to compare that to Aussie Super's offering, and we're going to use that as a proxy for industry funds, which of course Vanguard is trying to compete against. But maybe let's start with industry super. So We've seen a lot of consolidation in the industry super space, and the largest funds have continued to gather assets, and Aussie Super, of course, is one of the largest. So what do you think makes the industry super fund so attractive to investors, and what types of investors are gravitating towards these funds?
2: Great question. So I think there are a few things besides their size, and I'll come back to their size, but I think firstly, the profit for member narrative is extremely appealing for a lot of investors. So, what does profit for member mean? Just that basically there are no shareholders, all the profits go to their members and this has typically resulted in many of these funds offering investments at really attractive prices and and lower fees. Um, Now, I'd say shareholders aren't all bad. I mean, They can really drive efficiency and I think that is a watch point as these funds grow to make sure that they are being efficient for their members and continuing to offer great value for money when it comes to their investment options. Um, And and we've certainly seen evidence of this with the better funds where they've been able to drive that efficiency and lower fees to the benefit of their members uh, from that scale. I think touching on scale, scale, when I say scale, so the size of the funds, um, it makes them attractive when they are large for two key reasons, I'd say. Firstly, it enables them to access investments that are really difficult to access at smaller investment levels. So, I think Heathrow Airport. That's a great example. You and I probably aren't going halves in Heathrow Airport, unless there's something I don't know about you, Mark. Yeah, I mean, um, speak for yourself. Yeah, there. <laughs> um, but I think you know, going out and buying a, a reasonable size of something like Heathrow Airport, you need a lot of scale. You need to be a big player, and I think that gives them the ability to buy these quite unique, multi generational assets. Um, I think the other thing that scale affords them is that buying power, they're able to negotiate hard with investment managers and uh, that buying power often results in lower fees uh, for investments and administration costs. Um, To your last question, I think that industry funds are really attracting a lot of different type of investors. So. Many advisors are now embracing the use of industry funds. Many individuals are recognizing them as trustworthy options to entrust their super to. So I think it is a spectrum of investors.
0: Okay. And let's switch. We'll get back to Aussie super, but let's switch to Vanguard. So it's not obvious from my accent. I'm an American, so I'm very familiar with Vanguard. So that's a dominant player in the US market. It's got $10 trillion in assets globally. But maybe just a quick introduction to the company would benefit some listeners. Vanguard is making a big push into Australia, so both with this super offering that we're going to talk about today, and then they have a direct-to-investor option as well. But maybe Australians aren't as familiar with Vanguard.
2: Yeah. So as you say, Vanguard are a global monolith. Um, They are best known for their index business. So investment funds that are designed to track the market relatively inexpensively is what I mean when I say their index business. and. They are also extremely well-known for their exchange-traded fund business. Um, A little fun fact on Vanguard, so they have a fairly unique structure for an investment uh, company. They are actually owned by their own funds and ETFs. So those funds in turn are owned by investors. So the investors in the funds actually own the Vanguard Group, and this is a unique structure and creates great alignment. And when we get to the fee structure of the Vanguard Superfund, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that. But in Australia, as you as you said, they've made a significant push um, with and launched a new super fund, which is really exciting because there aren't many new super funds launching, given the strong brand Vanguard has. I see them as a real chance of competing against uh, some of those industry super funds. I would say though, it's it's not going to be easy. That space is is very very competitive. Okay. So Vanguard,
0: we'll talk about Vanguard Super a little bit. So they have a couple different options for investors. So you can select six single sector options, which allows you to set your own asset allocation. There are pre-mixed options and investors can then go in and pick based on their level of risk and adjust that allocation to growth or defensive assets And then there's a default option, which is a life cycle option. So let's start with the definition of what that is, because I think a lot of listeners may not be aware of what a life cycle option is.
2: So in a typical life cycle investment, an initial investment is made typically based on investor age into a well-diversified mix of investments. And then that investment mix gradually transitions into lower risk investments as you age so, this approach is certainly not new. Um, at the end of 2020 in the United States, Vanguard managed over one trillion dollars in this particular style of product, and it's also not new in the Australian market. so aware super, AMP, Australian Retirement Trust, just to name a few, they all offer life cycle options as well.
0: Yeah, so it's kind of like a set and forget, so you know we talk about always adjusting. As you get older and as you get closer to retirement, getting a little more conservative. So this is just doing that for you.
2: Exactly right, and I think that's probably one of the attractive things about life cycle funds for investors. That set and forget. So for investors who are wanting to take a more hands off approach, they are able to do that, and they're able to outsource it to a professional to monitor and adjust that investment mix over time. Um, And I'd say setting the initial asset allocation and adjusting it based on age is normally better than simply selecting an investment with really limited understanding of what you're buying and never making adjustments to it. I think that guidance that a lifecycle fund effectively provides and then that ongoing management is attractive and, and can be appropriate for a lot of investors.
0: Okay. So are there downsides? Are there types of investors that a lifecycle fund wouldn't work for?
2: I think it is it is a relatively simplistic approach when you compare it to, say, the highly personalised approach that you might find if you partnered with a financial advisor, for example. So a financial advisor will typically take into account factors such as your total wealth, your spouse's wealth, your pension eligibility, your risk tolerance, your goals, your risk capacity, um, your future spending patterns, and, and many other things. So I think that that personalised services is, is, can be very expensive and a lot of investors don't necessarily need that level of personalisation, but the nature of a lifecycle investment is such that it is very much solving for that average 58-year-old, 47-year-old, however old you are. Um, I think the other thing to keep an eye on besides uh, whether that defensive growth mix is appropriate given your age and stage is how gradual the shifts are. Um, of that investment mix over time. So smaller, more gradual adjustments over time are generally recommended over larger ones, particularly the adjustments are often made at a relatively arbitrary time, so your birthday, and this minimises the risk of making a really large change to your asset allocation at the worst possible time if if markets are, are really volatile at that particular time.
3: Morningstar Investor is built for investors by investors. It provides independent research and data on over 40,000 securities, tools to build and maintain an investment portfolio and investor education resources to support you, regardless of where you are in your investing journey. Explore opportunities with our monthly global best ideas. Explore our ETF model portfolios. Plan better with two years of dividend forecasts for ASX listed stocks. Stay informed with independent thought leadership. We've built tools to help you construct, monitor and maintain your portfolio, including our Portfolio Manager, integrated with one of Australia's leading portfolio tracking tools, ShareSight. Morningstar has been empowering investor success for over 35 years. We're passionate about your outcomes and are here every step of the way as you achieve them. Take out a free four-week trial to access our resources. Find the details in the episode notes.
0: Let's do a comparison. We talked about Aussie Super, and we're gonna make a comparison today. So obviously that's one of the super funds that Vanguard's competing against. Now, I know this is a little bit tricky because comparing a lifecycle fund to a pre-mixed option is can be difficult. So that life cycle fund is obviously gonna shift those asset allocations over time, where a pre-mixed is sort of a set asset allocation, even though you can choose to change it. So is there a way we can compare these easily?
2: I don't think it's easy. I think it is, as you say, I think it is tricky. Uh, But the approach I've taken is it's a pretty blunt approach. I've just picked two investors, so a 40-year-old investor and a 64-year-old investor, so hypothetical investors. That would put them in Vanguard's two lifecycle options. So the 40-year-old investor would be in a 10% allocation to defensive assets and a 90% allocation to growth assets, well, the 64-year-old investor would have an even mix of 50% in defensive and 50% in growth. So I've used those underlying asset allocations, so that underlying mix of growth and defensive assets, to try to make a comparison to Aussie Supers funds. Now, just looking at the underlying mix and classifying into growth and defensive is probably a bit simplistic, and there are a lot of nuances, particularly when it comes to those definitions Um, around defensive and growth, but that's that's the framework I've used to try to compare these two funds.
0: Okay. So one, and I've said earlier on this podcast, and this isn't an endorsement, but I actually use Aussie Super. And one of the reasons that I cited is that, and your Heathrow example is the perfect one, that they have access and they include unlisted assets. So whether that's property or infrastructure, things that I can't get access to as an investor, So that's a difference also between Vanguard if we kind of drill into those different asset allocations and Aussie, Vanguard and Aussie Super. So there's been this big push. So a lot of industry funds, as you said, are allocating more and more to these private investments. And a lot of this is that endowment model that Dave Swenson, who we've talked about before, so famously used to be before he passed away, the head of Yale's endowment. And a lot of people are following suit. So I guess, what's your view of the value of those investments, those private investments in portfolios, and how can that benefit investors?
2: Yeah, so I'm a big believer in diversification and trying to get as many valuable return sources into your portfolio. And if you look at Australia, Australian Supers' track record across their different asset classes, on the whole, those private assets, those unlisted assets, have proven really valuable to their members. So net-net, I think there's a lot to like about being able to hold those types of investments, but they need to be managed carefully, and investors need to be aware of some of the pitfalls um, and differences compared to listed investments.
0: And what's an example, I guess, of a pitfall? From so,
2: I think investors need to be un- need to understand that unlisted asset valuations tend to move around a little less than listed valuations. So. That means that the daily ups and downs of the market will impact returns less than, say, a fund that's got purely listed assets. So, unlisted assets tend to go up more, uh, sorry, up less in up markets and down less in down markets. But that's generally because they're just not revalued daily. So, there's nothing wrong with that per se. The flip side that investors need to be aware of that comes with is liquidity or or potentially the lack of liquidity. So what do I mean when I say the word liquidity? That just means how easy it is to convert assets into ready cash. So stock exchanges, the ASX, it's designed so that many buyers and sellers can come together and exchange assets quickly and easily. And as unlisted assets aren't transacted on these exchanges, the sales process can be more protracted. So Heathrow Airport, like we're not making a deal in one day on the sale of that particular asset. And if a portfolio really needs to turn assets into ready cash, investors, when investors are potentially heading for the exits and they want their want their cash, it makes things a little tricky if you hold a big allocation to unlisted assets. So I'd say some of the ingredients for success when thinking about a portfolio that you can transact on daily, so you can move in and out of it daily, like the Australian super options, that has an un- allocation to unlisted investments that obviously can't be bought and sold on a daily basis. I think that the allocation of those unlisted assets needs to be maintained at relatively modest levels. I think that you need to look at the inflow profile or outflow profile of a particular fund. So A fund that has a lot of money through the door every year compared to a lot of money out the door is in a much better place to hold unlisted assets than, say, a fund that's seeing a lot of members wanting to draw a pension and therefore they're getting a lot more outflows and inflows. And also a fund that's really committed to educating their members to stay invested in the market during those ups and downs because investors moving out at those times, it's it's ultimately on average going to be costly for those investors. So I'd say they th- some of the things to keep an eye on when it comes to unlisted investments.
0: Okay, great. So. Finally, let's talk about cost. I know that's something that your team looks at a lot with the different products that you cover. And you talked a little bit about Vanguard and their unique structure and how they're really known as being low-cost index investors, although they do have active strategies as well. So does this super product adhere to Vanguard's reputation as being this champion of low-cost passive investing? And Once again, I know this comparison might not be that easy, but is it cheaper than Aussie Super?
2: So Vanguard are coming in cheaper on the investment fee side of things than Aussie Super. And that is consistent with the investment strategy that Vanguard are adhering to. So as you say, Vanguard are champions of passive and the particular investment strategy that uh, they're employing for their lifecycle funds is a passive strategy. So they're not trying to beat the market but rather provide you with the return of the underlying asset class that you're invested in. So, for example, Australian equities. Now, as I said, Aussie Super, they are much more active in their management. They've got those unlisted assets and therefore their investment fee is coming in a little bit higher, which given their investment strategy, you would expect. But at the moment, Aussie Super have it over Vanguard on the administrative fee side. So, Aussie's scale helps provide lower admin fees uh, than Vanguard's at the moment. But you recall at the top of the uh, podcast, we were talking about Vanguard's ownership structure. Now, that ownership structure means that they have had a really good track record of passing their cost savings through to investors. And as and when that super fund grows, I think investors could expect that Vanguard will be lowering those administration fees. And really competing with the likes of Aussie Super, both both on the investment side and administration side of the fees. Okay,
0: great. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Really, uh, really appreciate it. So, Adika actually wrote an article also covering the same topic. So, we will pop that in the show notes if anyone's interested in reading that. And once again, thank you for listening to the podcast. Any questions you have, my email address is also in the show notes. And we would love any comments or ratings you have.